Cats Run Podcast. If you're enjoying the Black Cats Run podcast, check us out on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you're liking about the podcast or if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. Let's get into today's episode. Win Pro Nets. Right on target, back down to Tennessee, we go. We know where we're going, now we need to know how to get there. In our last episode, we built a concept, a target for how to win pro Nats. And we didn't do that by identifying the race in particular, we try to move from the race towards a way to think about what fitness is and what fitness really means. And then from that, we try to establish and we mapped out a representation of that concept in the form of a three-week training period in May. We're going to begin here by recapping what the concept was, because that's going to feed right into the focus of this episode, which is how do you get to that point once you know what the point you need to get to is, and we're going to be trying to connect specifically towards these things. So when you target a race and you set that as a goal for performance and you organize your year or your season around trying to perform at a high level at that particular event, it becomes necessary to have an understanding that's going to ground you and orient you around how does that process and preparation work. You know, it seems silly to think that you might just go out and, you know, try to create something similar to the course or the race and just do it every day. But At the beginning of fitness preparation strategies in the history of racing, that was essentially what people did, is they went out and they tried to recreate the race. And then over time, these strategies have morphed through different experiences, people trying different things, and through the way in which ideas are exchanged. We all hear different things about different athletes and the things that they do in their practice and sport. And then that can influence us and lead us to make certain decisions about what we think is the right thing to do. But ultimately, we're putting in our own interpretation. And that's sort of the game of telephone in the scale of the last 
100 to 150 years or so of people training for athletic events in a variety of different sports where fitness is the paramount and overwhelming influence on performance. And as a consequence of that, we end up in a place where a lot of the ideas and strategies and practices that we use are based on a process of development that might not be as empirically validated and scientifically perfected as we might sometimes like to imagine. And that's why it's important to really try to think and evaluate, you know, what does it mean to perform at an event like a national championship road race and cycling or whatever event that somebody else might be targeting. And in other episodes and other episode arcs in the podcast, we'll talk about all kinds of different events and how to win or how to hit a performance benchmark at those because there's nuances to all of this stuff. And as we talk about all of these different things, we learn more about this because it allows us to draw on these different ideas and perspectives. Now, our concept is focusing on this three-week period in May. And it could be the first three weeks in May, could be the last three weeks in May. But outside of that little bit of wiggle room, I don't think it should be any later and I don't think it should be any earlier. Now, setting it at that time and saying there's really not more than a week of wiggle room either way is really important because you need a certain proximity away from the race to make sure that you're going to be in a position where you can really go out and express that fitness. And a part of that becomes managing fatigue. And we'll post something on the Instagram page and put out a poll or, or put out a post and people can let us know if you want to hear one more episode uh, in this series on WinPro Nats. And that would cover from this block up to the race and then executing the race itself. And if there's enough interest, we'll put together an episode on that too. But you need that space because there's additional stuff that needs to happen between reaching that point of fitness and then reaching the point of the race. And that race is the weekend of like the 23rd and the 24th, I think approximately in June. And so assuming you're finishing this three-week block in May, this three-week training phase to let you know that you really are there where you need to be, then you're going to need to manage forward and apply particular strategies to make sure that you're going to be prepared to actually take the fitness you developed and get that to express itself in the right way in the race. And even if you're doing this three weeks and you're feeling great, the reality is it's hard to do this kind of training without taking on some level of fatigue. And looking for this balance where you're not adding and layering on excess amounts of fatigue and learning how to take that off without taking off fitness can be like a very delicate and specific process. And it requires a lot of adaptability and adjustment and nuance. And as with all things, you know, the capacity to improvise, as we've talked about in other episodes on the podcast, is really important. So you need that window of time to sort of adjust and make sure everything's functioning and, you know, that could include a variety of different things. We also don't want this to occur any earlier 
because the reality is training for a big race does require a lot of mental energy and a certain kind of process towards that. But the biggest thing that we need to think about is just the time needed to adapt and how do we build across from wherever we are starting to wherever we want to get. And I think we're looking at a time frame that needs to be on the scale of six months to probably closer to eight months would really be ideal if you want to be in position to win this race. Is it possible to win the race without doing this? Well, presumably yes, because every year somebody wins this race without doing this. I can say with absolute confidence and authority, nobody has ever used this strategy to win the race. But I also feel very confident that if you use this strategy, you probably would win the race, or at least you would be in the absolute best possible physical position to be able to do it. And then it comes down to how do you handle the circumstances of the race as the race unfolds as a tactical and a strategic puzzle to solve. So if we take that and we push it back further and further, well, then you have the problem of, well, what do you do if you have sort of reached fitness and you're sort of maybe too far away from the target race? Can that be a problem? And I think maybe different people would handle that differently But in general, we don't want this to occur too early because it will be harder to sort of maintain that. Because the idea is once you've got up to this level, and if you want to maintain that level of adaptation, you have to keep executing the kinds of things that you need to be able to do. And that can be challenging. And if you hit this level in, say, the beginning of March, you might think, well, that's a huge advantage. Now I'm way more fit. But to continue to get fit, you have to continue to put adaptive pressure on your system, on your body. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in theory, but all of the energy that takes, you know, is an additional complexity. And it's very easy to sort of once you reach kind of that high level of fitness, to sort of basically default back to a kind of maintenance level. And then there's an issue of when you're at maintenance level, are you really managing and maintaining the fitness level you're at really effectively? Or are you at a point where, you know, you start to detrain or you start to, you know, overcompensate and things start to get out of whack? But when you're still on the trajectory of building towards this, the nature of that progression tends to keep everything under control and in equilibrium. And then once you hit this point and you move past it, you're going to be in sort of a plateau. And you can that fitness is going to ride out for you for a certain length of time And for different people, that will ride out for different periods of time. And that's a part of, you know, the learning experience of sport is to recognize how do you respond? How long do you kind of like hold fitness? What are your strategies to maintain that? And I see people struggle sometimes way more to figure out what to do once they've gotten to their fitness level that they were targeting than they even did to get there in the first place. Because the idea of, we're always talking in sport about building fitness and building fitness and building fitness. And we're about to talk about that extensively in the context of this episode. But I think it's really important to emphasize that there's a whole other domain of how do we maintain fitness when we're at a point where we don't really, the issue isn't trying to constantly get fitter, right? What do we do then? And That's where if you reach your level, 
your targeted level too early, you're going to be in this period where you actually encounter another problem. Because here, you would need to continue to do 20-mile runs and long rides. You need to continue to then do those infralactate run and ride combo session days. You need to be able to continue to do those weights. And you could find that that might start to become unsustainable because rather than get to this thing where you're sort of like, I'm kind of reaching this apex and this is really exciting and I'm sort of discovering like that I've achieved this level of fitness, you know, anything will start to get stale given a certain period of time. And then if you try to say, well, let me change to doing different things. Well, now you're mixing up the stress and you're not going to be at that level of kind of uh, homeostasis, if you will. Some people talk about this concept as like getting into form or being in race form. And that's something that like comes from like horse racing and gambling on horse racing and people trying to figure out um, what horses are going to be well suited to perform well on any given day. And I don't really think that that's such a great concept um, to try to develop in cycling or running. Um, Cycling is sort of where you hear that term used a lot, but form isn't really the key here. If you look at some of the algorithmic models that are out there that, you know, supposedly will predict if you're on form, it's looking at a ratio or a relationship between fatigue, the training you've done, um, and your fitness. And the idea is that if you've done a lot of training and that's repressed, and I think according to a model like that, doing like what we have mapped out here would definitely not be considered getting into form. I think this would register as a huge depreciation in form. And I you know, went through a phase where I was super interested in the Strava fitness, freshness, and form graph. And I used to tinker with Golden Cheetah because it's cool to look at these metrics. But you know, you start to realize that it's really difficult to get them to sort of line up with how you are unless you're constantly inputting data. And you realize that these graphs just sort of force you, in a sense, into executing a particular very narrowly defined paradigm of training and workouts to generate the numbers that are needed to get the graph to look the right way. And then it doesn't even necessarily end up equating to any kind of like predictive model of what you're actually going to be able to do, which then makes you think, well, like, well, what the heck is the point of doing that? So I don't think leaning on stuff like that is really such a great strategy. But what we're talking about here is doing this sort of like apex training session. Um, and you know, I think that a session can be certainly used to refer to any one day, any one workout, but I also think a session could be used to describe anything that's a period of time that elicits a meaningful training effect. So this three week routine, um, which I will have posted something on Instagram outlining this so people can see it, um, it'll be easier to see it maybe than just hear it described. But essentially, simplify, in the three weeks, there are five sort of routine days that I would say are like, maybe you might describe them as zone two or steady state to relaxed aerobic. And that should the point is that by this time of your development towards the race of pro nationals, this stuff should be routine. And if at this point this stuff isn't routine, you're probably not going to win the national championship. And that's because that's the concept of the fitness development is that you have to be at a certain level of fitness because that's going to give you the physical capacity 
to execute whatever tactics or strategies are necessary. And of course, when you're doing something like a bike race, you have to be aware that it's within the ability of the competitors to, you know, in the spirit of, of fair play, it's not against the rules, to make it like significantly harder for you to, you know, ride the race than, you know, you might ideally prefer. And, you know, we've talked in, you know, other episodes in this WinPro Nats arc about how we need to be able to respond, right? And we can't be a one-trick pony where we can do sort of one effort and then people come up to us and then we're done and our day's over because it was all the chips on the table that one time. That's never going to work. In cycling, you have to have the repeatability to go again and go again and go again. And developing that through fitness is that's where that comes from, you know, and that fitness is the insurance, it's the parachute, and it's also the springboard to be able to do the kind of stuff that makes the sport super exciting. Because when you have the ability to execute a strategy where you can make efforts repeatedly in the race without breaking down, that's really fun because then it's really getting exciting and you really can be involved in the race in a much more dynamic way. Because we aren't talking about a fictional pipe dream level chance. We're talking about, I am the overwhelming favorite to win the national championship. People just don't know it yet energy. That's kind of where we're looking to be at here. The challenging work in this is the harder days. And there's two harder days a week, and it's three weeks. So that's six harder days overall. And that's one of the indications of fitness is if you get to this point, if you get to May and you're doing this and only six of the days feel that they're above just average, I could do this every day, whatever level training, that's a really good sign right there. Because the other days by that point, again, should be easy. And we can't overemphasize that enough. You know, you might look at an eight mile run at 60 to 65 minutes and then a two-hour ride, and it might be difficult to conceptualize that as being easy. But you also want to look at that and say, man, if I can do that and that's easy, I would have to be really strong and really fit. And that's the point. I mean, ideally, ultimately, you're trying to get to a point where it's like you just don't feel like you can get tired. And you sort of see, I think, some of the exercise physiology stuff when people talk about stuff with mitochondria and, you know, higher level performing athletes having this higher mitochondria levels and that idea of kind of just like being able to do really high levels of work, just, you know, not in a literal sense, but in a kind of, you know, hyperbolic sense, unendingly, you know, is sort of the aspiration of a lot of people through their fitness. But I don't think that's always how we're actually thinking about what we're doing. And I'm interested to see if, you know, we're going to continue to see more of an emphasis on this mitochondrial aspect of stuff. But I think unless we develop something that really allows us to measure stuff in a more actionable way, I think it's going to be hard for that to really make headway against sort of the established metrics that people are focused on. So the athlete should only be doing this three-week target um, that we're building towards in the first place if the infralactate days and the long days are the only thing that are challenging. If you can't do the easy days and have them be easy, then you're not going to be able to handle doing the longer days. And even if you 
can get through that, you'll basically have done a personalized version of a stage race and you'll be so wrecked, there's no way that you're going to be able to, you know, rebound between the end of this and, you know, the pro nationals. You know, giving yourself basically, you know, three to four weeks after this would compensate for whatever sort of fatigue that you need to regulate out of the system. And we're not going to get into that any more than that. Uh, That would be for that additional episode if there's popular demand for that. So what we want to see, though, across this period of three weeks is we want to see fatigue dissipating at a constant rate across the time frame. And I think sometimes when we're starting to get overloaded or when we're trying to adapt to a new training load, we might find that fatigue Uh, the sort of cool down, if you will, rate of a fatigue load can be variable. Like if you introduce a new level of intensity of work, and that could be through volume, it could be through pace, it could be through frequency of sessions, you might find that it seems to be harder to sort of get through that fatigue and have the energy to do something of substance, something more substantial again. But as you keep working through that routine, you should start to feel that the recovery process becomes easier and easier and easier. Things start to come into alignment for you more and more quickly. And you know you're in great shape if you can go through a period of training where you're doing every few days something a little bit more significant, a little bit more demanding, and you're just kind of resetting from that fatigue at a consistent rate. One of the things we definitely don't want to see happening here, but also throughout the build-up to this point, is we don't want to see that with each workout, it's getting harder and harder to rejuvenate and sort of get back to where we can do another effort. That's a big red flag that something isn't working. And we want to define these things here about what this three-week period should be like, because I think the default mindset for a lot of us is to be like, okay, this is going to be this rite of passage that I'm going to go and I'm going to do this and I'm going to come out, right? I'm going to be like, a real member of, you know, the cycling community. I will have transcended, you know, and and I will be, you know, different than I was before. And, you know, I will have made it through the liminal state um, of this training period. And that's not true. You know, the idea is to get here and have it be, in theory, maybe kind of the most like unremarkable and banal and standard thing that you'll have done throughout your training process. By defining that, it should be more clear what we need to be able to do. Because there's there's a level of fitness you can reach where you can, you know, reach the end of this three weeks in absolute disaster. Or there's a level of fitness where you can just go through that and be like, wow, I can't believe how unremarkably easy that was. And that's where we want to be. We want to be in that second state because that's a sign of preparedness. That's a sign of that you've adapted And, you know, in training, we try to elicit adaptations in the hope that when we've adapted to that stress, that is going to lead to an elevated capacity to perform. So this isn't a test of fitness, okay? It's not like a check to see if I can do this, no matter how hard it is, I can win the Pro National Championship. You're only setting yourself up to guarantee a win for the National Championship if you can go through this and the whole thing's a freaking slam dunk, okay? That's the level that we're looking to get to here. So what does this mean for race performance? 
if we're going to build to this, how is that going to change the race performance? Why is that better than some of the alternative strategies? So let's talk about the shared road climb perspective versus this concept approach um, that we're suggesting here at Black Cat's Run. So we talked about initially in this arc that one idea, which I'm suggesting, and to be fair, to some extent, I'm holding up as kind of a COD exemplar. So we have something to reference and, and bounce off of as we're developing our own idea. That one assumption is to say that with cycling races, you want to think about what's the hardest part of the course, which you know oftentimes is the climb. I suppose if you're doing... Um, cobbled classics races, right? Those sort of sectors of pave are going to be maybe the issue. But most of the time, people are looking for the climb, right? Because that's where you can't really, you know, that benefit of the draft uh, is gone, right? And, you know, drafting is really what makes cycling such a unique sport. Um, And a lot of people can, you know, really get exposed uh, when the drafting effect is no longer there to support them. So far, we've argued mostly to dismiss that kind of a concept of focusing on the climb, right? And at the national championship in Knoxville, that would be Sherrod Road. Um, And we've argued to dismiss that because we wanted to make sort of space to establish this different approach. And now I think we've talked about enough that we can prove, we can circle back and we can prove why our target is a better solution to that perceived problem. So let's pretend the problem is the hill, okay, even though we're saying it really isn't. So these I'm going to refer to some uh, data and some charts that I've posted on the Instagram here. And the Sherrod Road climb um, is, I modeled this uh, based on just my power numbers um, because that's more tangible and we've kind of profiled a little bit about that. So that's kind of something that I think is a more relatable uh, data point. But I've tried to, I'm going to talk about it a little bit in terms of watts per kilogram too. So if you're looking to kind of conceptualize for you what that might mean, you have a better sense of how to think about that. So these are just some numbers, um, approximately the splits up the climb uh, from I think 2021 is where I pulled this data, just to give an example of you know, how times and efforts up the course, the climb may change over time. And all of these efforts are basically 5 watts per kilogram to about 6.3 watts per kilogram. And that's the average over the course of the climb, right? There's going to be variance within that. Could be harder in the first third, the middle, the end, you know, all over the place, right? But it's still a relatively short enough effort, you know, at around 2 two to two and a half minutes that there's not going to be a ton of opportunity to really constantly, um, you know, rope-a-dope the climb because it's just gets, it relatively speaking is over pretty fast, even though it doesn't, it's the kind of thing where it's not going to feel like it's getting over very fast when you're actually doing it. So, you know, what I'm modeling here um, is there's, First of all, uh, a red line, sort of dotted, dashed red line, and that represents um, what my VO2 max level is um, as a percentage of my threshold. And we're saying that VO2 max is about 120%-ish of threshold. 
I'm sure this stuff varies from individual to individual, but it's a, a close enough approximation to try to illustrate what we are trying to focus on understanding at this point. And then we took two different lines of data. Uh, one of them, um, uh, the black line, is the data from what my cycling threshold got up to when I went through the period where I was doing the lactate testing without running. And the other line in the yellow represents what my threshold uh, has gotten up to since I added running back into the training routine. And you see a significant difference because in the former instance, the whole way through the race, you know, I'm working at minimum 135% up towards 155% of threshold. So I'm well over VO2 max. And that's sort of the other limiter, I think, to thinking about VO2 max is you're training to sort of specifically be as efficient and strong as possible at a VO2 max effort, but you're not really being going to be able to do that. And there's research and evidence and people talk about this. It's just, again, you know, the kinds of games of, you know, social telephone um, that affect how these ideas actually spread. But, you know, training at VO2 max, there's not really, even in the physiological research now, really a consensus that that's going to drive up your threshold. And I think basically we can say that training at VO2 max efforts doesn't really do much to improve your threshold at all, and certainly not compared to things that are um, alternative strategies to that. But when you add in, like the significant factor here is that, you know, when I add in that running, what happens is now the first four times up this hill, I'm really at or slightly under my VO2 max. So the issue isn't training at VO2 max. The issue is trying to be under these markers, right? So like in theory, if a bike race was being done um, and, and to be honest, like, you know, for, you know, people who don't ride at all or people who aren't, don't exercise or, you know, have had a significant layoff from exercise, this could actually be true that if they went out and tried to do an elite level bike race, they might not be able to keep up for five seconds because it might be beyond their absolute neuromuscular peak. You know, their absolute sprinting maximum, you know, would be what they would need to keep up. And so they're not going to hold that for very long. And so if you think about those progressive backoffs of thresholds, you know, and then you go down to, you know, some people might say there's an anaerobic capacity thing, and then people might say VO2 max, and then lactate threshold, and aerobic threshold, and then there's taking a nap. And as you get under each of those benchmarks, things start to feel significantly easier. You know, and if you've done the lactate testing, it is certainly true that as you go up a little bit, you know, if you just go up 20 watts, all of a sudden a 20 watt step feels like a 500 watt increase. It, it's really remarkable how, you know, your effort, you feel the exponential change in effort. It's not just um, you know, the accelerated curve of lactate, you know, it's happening and you can feel it. Um, and it can be very frustrating when you're testing and it's happening at a wattage that you really don't want to see it happening at. So adding this training approach, our sort of feel good, you know, looking for this multiplicity 
of stimuli towards aerobic benefit, combining cycling and running, that's what would make it easier to go up this climb. Because in that model, I'm only reaching 135% the last time when you know we're looking at a 158 split up the climb. Whereas in the other instance, I would be at my finishing effort um, from the get-go here. And, you know, if you compare those two athletes, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. You know, the for athlete whom, you know, is not having to, you know, bust a gut going up the climb, but might still be working hard, you know, that's a big, a big difference. And in theory, you know, if you were fitter and you could get your threshold towards five plus watts per kilogram, now you'd be really at an advantage. And I think that would really be the ideal target. I don't think that my numbers here are representative of the level that we're trying to get to, but we're just, it's illustrative of how when you raise these capacities and you bring it so that you can execute effort and be under those thresholds of increasing difficulty that are sort of represented by the physiology and the zones that people derive from the physiological testing and research, it's going to make a big difference in performance. And the second graph that we're looking at, which on that, if you found the post on the Instagram, if you swipe on that, you'll see this graph too. Um, this is watts against time of Sherrod Road. And again, I'm just using my fitness data, so there's real numbers from a real person. And that's just a scale um, showing you a, between two minutes and uh, 2.30, how many watts am I going to be using at those different things? And then for frame of reference, I have right my FTP slash LT before adding running and then after. And you can see, um, you know, that that, right, it's just a different way of saying improving your uh, aerobic abilities by 50 watts makes a huge difference. And it is the difference between something being manageable and unmanageable. And it's the same concept as, you know, base training. I used to feel that even just going home for winter break in college for three weeks and just doing a bunch of steady outdoor runs and no specific workouts, and then I would come back to campus and we'd immediately be back on the track and running, you know, these crazy repeat quarters, you know, and, you know, repeat 200s, which... You know, that's like zone six equivalent for cyclists, right? Basically, we're doing all of this or Jack Daniels rep pace. We just, the intensity was extreme, but I would know, and we only did 60 seconds recovery. Um, so if you could get any additional recovery, it was a big difference. And I would notice that benefit. It was still not enough to offset the fatigue, but my ability to do those workouts, you know, I did notice, right, just from a three-week um period of just doing aerobic training and lots of miles and it it makes a difference so then you know imagine expanding that benefit across a longer range of time and and strategically in terms of our training that's what we're trying to do so what we see here is two things you know one the effort up the climb is going to be super lactate you know it would be you'd have to be at a pretty unique level of fitness you'd have to be at a uh, world champion level, you know, road race world champion level to be able to go up this climb and have this be aerobic. And I'm not saying that's not possible, but that's a level of fitness that I think it would take longer than eight months for most people to reach. I would say 
if you could reach that level in eight months, you would probably already be at a level where you're going to win the national championship road race anyway. Two, we're seeing that the training interventions that I've discussed for myself in other episodes and in different contexts than the podcast in general would have a significant impact. Specifically, my ability to add 40 to 50 watts to my FTP through introducing running back into my training plan is clearly an overwhelmingly effective intervention. And, you know, we've talked about in the concept of, well, that's engaging that FRM type mechanism that we've said is clearly impactful on VAM. And again, with FRM, it's not about a velocity. You know, you could cover those miles slowly or quickly, and it seems it doesn't matter particularly what that velocity is. If you're just going uphill a lot, you're getting way more value per unit of distance spent training. So what makes this possible and what makes the concept meaningful is that we better understand what we're training into. We know what our workouts, our zone two, and our endurance work needs to develop into, right? And we have this, I'm transforming what I can do right now. Maybe for some of us, you know, that might be 15 minutes of jogging. But we're going to transform that into eight-mile runs and even 15 to 20-mile runs. That's where we're trying to go, okay? And it's easier to make that connection in your training from I want to do this training now so I can do this training later, okay? Versus saying, I want to do this race, how do we make that connection? And we see historically people have struggled with that to the point of like, well, I guess I just need to go out and practice the race intensity and... I think for people who continue to listen to the podcast, I think you're going to be really interested in some of the stuff that we bring forward and and we try to think about different people's experiences and whether people's experiences actually bear out that concept of specificity being ideal. Training is an environment, though, and the whole system needs to develop if you, the athlete, are going to develop. We aren't trying to use some new workout as our leverage, and then we're just going to climb that workout throughout, you know, X number of months, and then we're going to jump out the other side, you know, like the star-bellied Sneetches and Dr. Seuss, and oh, aha, I'm so different, right? And that, I mean, that sort of star-bellied Sneetches story, by the way, is I think a really fair um, representation of how a lot of training culture works, is we're just constantly going in and out of the machine, you know, trying to follow whatever we perceive other people to do. And, you know, most people, I think, at the end of the day, don't like what I'm saying. Not, I don't think, as a a personal thing, but it's just in conflict with a lot of the understandings that we have. And I think sometimes, and I want to acknowledge this because I think it's important and, and appropriate to do so, I think sometimes there's this sense of if there's established practices and you question those, that that's somehow rude or impolite, and that you can't question uh, those practices, and you can't wonder if what people are doing is effective, because somehow that might be like insulting or unkind. And that's never our goal here on this podcast. Uh, But I think that when you sort of have that culture, that's an example of the silencing effect that we've talked about before on the podcast. You know, we should be able to ask questions and wonder 
is that the most effective? Because if we don't do that, then we're just sort of accept, accepting certain certain things as the status quo. And, you know, that's the opposite of progress and innovation. And it's good to try think, out new things and see if they work and take the good and discard the ineffective. And if we don't make space for that, I think we're also losing a, bu- a lot of the fun of the sport, which is that creativity. You know, I think there's an opportunity for creative self-expression in something like athletics and this effort to sort of systematize it um, into sort of this industrial models of production where it's just like, again, right, you go in one end of the machine and you come out and there you go. You know, that's all there is, um, I think is just, you know, a loss for the experience of doing it. And I don't think it's that effective. And, you know, maybe most people don't like what we're proposing here, but maybe most people will never win the national championship, right? We're back to that conundrum of if we do what everybody else is doing, probability, we're probably going to do what everybody else is doing. And that means if we do their preparation, we're going to reach their level of performance. And, you know, and if that's going to be average in one end, it's going to be average on the other end. Nothing wrong with being average, and I say that as somebody who has often found themselves in the average space. Feeling fit is great, but right, the purpose of this particular series of episodes on the pod is to try to solve this conundrum of how do you win this championship. So to do that, you always have to be willing to go beyond um, the level of what you might think you would target. And I think most of us default to the minimum, and that just means we're at the lowest possible level of what could allow us to do that. And that's a huge gamble because then you have to be at the absolute apex of your powers. And I think you really want to get into this state where you can be kind of having a average day and relative to the field you're racing against, that's going to put you in a position to be exceptional, right? And that your average should be above average or exceptional compared to the field that you're racing against. And that's how people win consistently. Let's talk about a concept that I want to call triangle of fitness. The triangle of fitness is a way to think about how we can execute our progression towards that model or that concept because we then need a supporting concept of what fitness is. And triangle of fitness is just a phrase that I cooked up in my wizard cauldron of made up uh, training terminology, but we have to construct phrases for the ideas, otherwise we don't have any place to put them and keep them and we have to just re-explain everything all over again every single time which is a huge waste of time so this triangle consists of three parts strength which means increasing the ceiling of what you can or can't do easy aerobic training that is effective in aggregate not because of any single session and then endurance aerobic which is the uh, concept of endurance being used to hold any effort for a length of time. So if you can do something for a fixed amount of time and then you can extend that amount of time, 
that's an act of endurance. You're improving your endurance. You can endure at an effort for longer than you could before. And these combine to create what I would consider to be a high actionable threshold. And that actionable threshold or that actionable LT is that concept of what it should feel like to be able to race well and be in a position where you can win this race. Because if you want to do that, you always need to have that control, right? You always need to feel like you don't have your foot quite down on the gas because once the pedal's on the floor, it's pretty much over. And it either needs to be over because you're going across the finish line and you're, or you're clear from wherever you are in the race to the finish, or it's over because you don't have anything left to go to, right? We need to keep the pedal off the floor. So our goal is to work as long as possible without experiencing fatigue that accumulates. It's okay to be in a state of demand, but not a accelerating demand towards failure. And it's this weird state where you're like, wow, I can freaking do this forever. And so all of a sudden the power goes out, but you don't feel that coming down on you, um, you know, and crushing you into the ground. Because if that starts happening, then it's basically all over anyway. It's just a matter of time. So this is very different from the idea of an interval, uh, which is that you kind of know right away as you start that there's this dark cliff which you're just rushing towards and are going to have to fall off again and again. And that can be a very anxious feeling. Personally, in training, I hate that. And I think my sort of tendency to reject that um, has caused me to expand my thinking and you know has led to what I feel has been a lot of successful um, kind of approaches in terms of trying to think about this stuff in different ways and tailoring what we're trying to do to be more effective. And I don't think that it's actually that new. I think it's tapping into an approach to sport that a lot of people have used, but it just hasn't been given voice to. And hopefully in the podcast over time, we can give that more and more voice. And that our success is coming through being in that state of poise. And power is key here. That's going to be what's changing through integrating these elements together. So how are these elements going to combine to create power? Well, you're acclimatizing into that through the controlled feeling of effort. It does not matter what zone you're in. If you aren't feeling controlled and strong as you're working hard, which is the definition of feeling good or our feel-good training, it's incorrect. So we need to be designing our training sessions around the characteristic of feeling in control and strong even though we're working hard not defaulting to the, well, the power is the power, the zone is the zone, and we just need to master how we feel so we can do that. Because if we can't work well feeling controlled and strong, then we can't, that's not going to translate to racing, okay? So, and remember, we want to have power first, and your weight is a result of training and healthy eating. You can't get faster by getting skinny. That's a myth. You can decrease the power needed when the weight goes down, but that's really not as meaningful as cycling culture, and I think some areas in running culture, for that matter, would have us believe. You know, your weight, your body weight, is not the chassis around the engine. Your body is a physiological whole. It's all the engine, and removing parts of it through diet isn't building that engine. It's just smashing it with a wrench and then wondering 
you know, why as you're just chipping chunks off of it, well, why isn't it going faster? I'm, I'm cutting weight. So we want to be engineering, right, as we're thinking about this, right? We need to be designing and improving our engine to get it to produce more power. That's what we're doing. And that three-week target in May, that's a better framework to design an engine than this VO2 max protocol type stuff. You know, the Wright brothers' plane flew technically, but do you want to take that plane to fly across the Atlantic? And if you would say, why not, then I guess you probably don't know much about your history of flight. So talk a little bit more about these three pieces of the triangle before we move to our next component. Easy aerobic. This would mean primarily uh, training meant to only add small amounts of general aerobic capacity, and the fatigue level should always be less than 24 hours, which means that every day you should wake up and you shouldn't feel tired or any more tired as a result of doing that. Only doing this stuff, if this is all you ever do, you're going to either plateau or you're going to detrain because the recovery cycle is shorter than 24 hours, so you just don't have enough pressure to maintain that adaptive stress. You're not going to stay in the zone where the body is feeling that pressure to do that anymore, and then it will immediately start backing off, and you'll start losing those fitness adaptations. Endurance aerobic, we're looking at any training sessions that you can do in a controlled steady state that are going to be able to extend what we're trying to um, to work on. And that could be any variety of efforts or intensities. And strength, sessions that improve muscular force, and you know, especially these exertions over aerobic capacity. We're not doing those to the point of stamina, we're doing those to the point of engagement. How can I practice efforts over aerobic capacity in a way that's sustainable and manageable? That's the stuff that's going to lead to progression. Not saying, well, I can do this for 30 seconds, let me do it, you know, for 90 seconds or two minutes or to the point of borderline failure, again, rushing towards that dark cliff, that's not going to be helpful. Second thing is we need some sort of a general way to think about how are we going to like build this triangle of fitness forward, right? So we can identify these principles for getting to the national championship. How do we build those forward? And I think a interesting concept that we can think about using here as a reference is funnel periodization. So there's lots of different models of periodization. And I think periodization is basically about trying to find phases of training in most contexts. We can also, though, and this is the value we want here, use it to think about how to progress from what we can currently do now to being able to do more work in the future. And that's why it's so important to frame a concept around a training level and not a race. So funnel periodization sort of takes the concept of the floor and the ceiling, right? The what can you do at your highest intensities and then how long can you work at your lowest intensities? And the model says you work at higher intensities for short periods and long periods for longer periods. And then, you know, your specific workouts start to develop as those get closer together that you start to do higher intensity intervals that are a little bit longer, but a little less intense, and the shorter, more intense stuff laid the base or built into that. 
and then your steadier, longer efforts start to get a little bit faster, and then you can start to see how they sort of move towards each other, and we'll try to put up a diagram of that for reference on the Instagram page too. And when we think about that, what we want to use from this is that we can both use training for longer durations at moderate efforts, and that when we're going to train at higher intensities for like strength, then we want to do short durations. And that when we combine these things, that's the mechanism to create that actionable LT, which is that tireless form of high intensity. And I hadn't come across stuff about funnel periodization at this time, but when I was coaching the cross-country team that I've referenced before, essentially you could think about some of our training was doing that. When we did 20 times a 200, you might say that that's working at the sort of ceiling end of the funnel and that when we're doing you know, our longer runs um, or our infralactate, you know, 4,000 meter efforts that you could say we're working more so towards the floor of that model. Um, and then, you know, over the season, the athletes progress in their fitness and they, you know, the longer stuff and the higher end stuff, right? Each of them is sort of opening up the opportunities to, you know, extend and, you know, they sort of are intersecting to create more endurance um, at specific intensities and higher demands of work. And we don't want to use this to sort of progress into two by 20 minute intervals, which I think could be another potential application of, of this funnel periodization concept. We say, well, we just take this and this will make it easier to get to the two by 20 minute iconic lactate threshold intervals. And then you improve at those. And then you have the, you know, necessary strength to contest in the race. And that's not what we're working towards, right? We'd be using this funnel to get to that point where we want to be in May. And that's a part of how we're organizing towards that stuff, right? So our high end would be our strength work. And then our low end of the funnel is going to be that endurance aerobic type stuff. And then we're supporting that with all of that easy aerobic training that nobody really seems to want to talk about, um, because they don't have a cool way to label it maybe, but it's overwhelmingly important. And as we're moving through the funnel, and this is our next piece, we need a benchmarking approach to this. Because that's an obvious limiter, is figuring out how to pace that training progression. And I think one way to address that problem for us in this um, is to think about benchmarks, and that we train up from one level to the next. And there's a kind of like progressive pacing behind this. And this is also one of the goals of periodization. It's an attempt to model or identify the progressive pacing of training, but you need to have some improvisational abilities behind that in order to be able to get that nailed down. So here's three pieces of benchmarks, okay? Um, let's talk about December by March and by May, because ideally we would need, we need to get in our time machine and go back to Labor Day. So working forward from Labor Day weekend, by December, you need to be have progressed from running 15-minute runs to 60-minute runs, and you should be, up, be able to do a long run of 10 miles. Riding-wise, we should be focusing on zone 2 riding with climbing um, as an emphasis. FRM should be an emphasis throughout, and that should maybe be, you know, two-hour rides is reasonable at this point. We don't need to be going crazy. If you're on the trainer, 
that could be maybe doing rides of an hour to two hours. I don't think we need to ride as much on the trainer if we're combining it with running as we would if we were only riding our bike. And on the trainer, doing shorter repetition work at really only a two millimole intensity. So that could be 30 to 45 second repetitions and just doing, you know, 40 to 60 of them with a 50 to 60 second easier rep in between. And you could break that into sets. For weights, we'd want to be establishing our weights routine. And, you know, if we get up to lifting 100% of body weight, and if we can get up to 150% of body weight by that point, that's great. People are going to progress with weights at different points. And if somebody can, I don't know, only squat the bar, then you say, that's okay. For me, that's challenging. And if I work at that, I will get benefit. The point is to be able to, um, you know, progress. And, you know, that would be a part of what you have to figure out as time goes by is what's going to be appropriate for you. What's our benchmark next? Well, that's going to be March. By March, our running should be at the point where we're incorporating fartlek training to improve speed. And that might mean running 16 times 30 seconds up tempo at a super lactate and then 50 seconds very easy. And you should be able to have progressed to a long run of 15 miles. To go from 10 miles to 15 miles between December and March is pretty reasonable. People who uh, do marathon running progress very, what I would say, very quickly to long runs all the time. And this is a much, much more moderate progression for that. If you're riding, you know, mostly on the trainer, it's just continuation. We're operating on the assumption here, too, to be clear, that riding is the characteristic we predominantly maybe have more so under control and that that's not going to be what has to be developed up as much. But again, that high rep count and we're looking at, you know, two millimole work workouts and then we can also incorporate short reps at super lactate, you know, by this point. And weights, it's just, again, that concept of improving the amount of weight that we can lift. And that would be focusing on, you know, three to five sets of five reps, you know, and taking whatever break you need in between. I find that, you know, for me, I don't really need a break in between. I just wait until I feel I can go again and then I go. And it's really not any more complicated than that. And then by May, when we're ready to transition into this block, we should be able to do longer running intervals on, you know, an infralactate state. And that could be like six to 10 minute periods of work, but also still, you know, incorporating high repetition intervals. And that could be a combination of, you know, doing one longer interval and then doing a handful of, you know, high repetition count, shorter intervals, riding, right? Mix of rides, you know, hills in our rides, steady state efforts. And I think reps, if on the trainer, I think doing repetition training outside on the bike is just super difficult to really get a lot of value out of that unless you have like an ideal piece of road. And if you can figure that out and you can get that to work for you and you can get the same sort of consistent effect that you would get, you know, using a trainer, then I think that's totally valid. And at this point, if you're able to lift 150% of body weight, now your goal should be to add reps or add sets, you know, and you could do a variety of you know, adding, alternating between days where you try to do more sets and then days where you try to maybe do, you know, less sets, but you might try to do 10 reps at that body weight. And the reality is, again, if you're not hitting these benchmarks, 
you're not going to be ready to do that three-week block. And if you can't do that three-week block at a level of like, man, I feel good, I'm strong, I'm just nailing this stuff, everything's everything's easy, everything is in my wheelhouse, you're not going to win the national championship. But if you're just looking to you know improve, which is also part of the value here, you know, I think the weights, like you want to keep developing those until you can get to 150% body weight before you really start trying to, you know, extend the number of reps that you can do. And, you know, we want to track pacing across all three domains of the activity, as you can see. And, you know, we want to think about the easy aerobic component of this, which we're trying to develop into the eight mile runs at approximately eight minute pace and the two hours of riding um, with high FRM. Um, and FRM, by the way, is also something we're adapting into. Okay, unless you already do a lot of FRM, um, and even if you do, you can always look to get more out of that. And we want to think about the endurance aerobic piece, which we are going to develop into infralactate work as well as the 20-mile gold standard ride combination sessions, which I think just gets you a totally different level of endurance stamina and is going to be so critical for long road racing or any length of bike racing in terms of just like, I can just keep going and going and going, and I can make efforts again and again and again and not get tired. And we want to think about strength, which we're basically targeting through the weights, but also the infralactate and the FRM and the gold standard work. All of that stuff is working to that. To a great degree, all of these things are also integrated together. That's one of the driving forces behind getting to the point of winning this race is that Training is a choreography, and the power of that dance is in the cohesion of the sequence that we develop across an extended period of time. We've talked about the triangle of fitness, but there's a second set of three things we want to think about, too. And that's thinking about those areas of intervention. And we did, in a sense, sort of talk about those in the context of, you know, what are our kind of benchmark points as we progress towards this three-week block in May And I think thinking specifically about what's happening with our running and our cycling and our weight training is important and not just thinking about what is the sort of like fitness concepts or workout concepts we're applying. You know, culturally, our expectations of what our experience uh, can be or should be can make it hard to think about these of being on an equal level with one another and I'll be honest as an example, you know, my personal bias of what I want, you know, in a sense, the experience of being an endurance athlete to be makes me sort of want to question the value of weights. But I also know from personal experience that, you know, I've had a lot of success where I've had periods where I've, you know, invested in doing leg weight work, you know, and doing sets of, you know, in my case, 20 reps sets of squats where I was, you know, rising, trying to really rise with strength all the way through the movement. And that really contributed, I felt, to my middle distance running and racing quite a bit. But with the running, running for cyclists is going to be a shock. It might feel kind of wrong. Cycling is very easy compared to running. And that's not meant to be a knock on cycling. There are Parts of cycling that are harder, but if you compare, you know, five minutes of cycling to five minutes of running, running's a lot harder. And if you're a cyclist and you don't agree with me, go outside, 
right now, run three miles and then, you know, send us a, a DM on the Instagram page and, and let us know what you think. Um, you know, speaking from experience, I've done both, you know, and, and one of the ways we know it's harder is runners get injured a lot um, because the demand on the body is more specific and more intense. And, you know, the runners don't always manage their engagement with the activity well as they do stupid things. And so as a cyclist incorporating running, trying to get this into this paradigm of using both to get fit, recognize you might be sore and some of that is inevitable. However, for the most part, that shouldn't really be a problem. That should be short term. Some of us might respond faster than others, and that's okay. You don't need to lean into that and try to force it, right? Just your body's going to adapt the way it adapts, and it might happen slowly at first, and then you'll start to see probably, um, you'll start to see more, you know, rewarding jumps in fitness. And you might want to start out trying to run every other day, jog out for seven minutes and back for seven minutes. That means under control, right? You're not getting winded. You're not trying to do the equivalent of whatever you remember doing for the mile run in gym class, right? We're looking for very smooth and controlled and steady, right? We should feel like our lungs are staying in our chest and our eyeballs are staying in our head. You know, cycling also, FYI, has been linked to lower bone density among people who just ride a lot. And running, on the other hand, will really strengthen our joints and not weaken them. And once you can run for 60 minutes comfortably, and comfortably is more important than anything else here, that's when you'll know you'll really be in a position to start actually transitioning to some real running training. But until you can get to that point, it's all about control. You don't worry about how fast you're going. You worry about being comfortable. And you'll be getting benefit from this too, even though it might not feel like the training you're doing is very legitimate and you might be embarrassed to put it on your Strava or whatever, but it is beneficial because you're taking something that's challenging. Your body doesn't know how cool you look on Strava. Your body just knows if it's being called on to make adaptations and that's what you're doing. Weight training, we need to make sure that we accept the level that we're at. Your body is good at communicating what you can do and that's the cue you need to be responding to. And when we're thinking about what we want to get out of strength training, we're kind of taking an idea that's been represented by Peter Co. and Seb Co. and their concept of circuit training. And that basically means that you're not trying to hit max efforts or really high intensity efforts like in maybe conventional strength training or what you might see in explosive sports. We're trying to develop strength and endurance. You know, you could do uh, a variety of different lifts. But I think squats and deadlifts is probably sufficient. And especially if you don't have a background in doing a lot of lifting, it's better to do a few things well than a a lot of things poorly. And, you know, once we get to a certain point in terms of weight, like I'm suggesting 150% body weight, then it's really primarily about progressing our capacity to do that work. And the way that, you know, uh, a miler, right, if you want to break four minutes, well, once you can run a 30, you know, or a 29, you know, to some extent, it's just, well, I need to progress and improve my ability to do 29 or 30 second 200s again and again and again. And weight, the weight training is synergistic with everything else. We talked about floors and ceilings, and the weight training helps us more comfortably access more watts. It's not a panacea. A lot of people are good without lifting. 
but the amount of time it takes, especially if you're able to have weights at home, which if you only have two lifts, it actually might be a worthwhile investment because then you're talking about maybe spending 20 minutes a week total. I think for me, because I don't need to take time between sets because the recovery is very quickly, it might be a total of like five minutes to do both uh, lifts, which is basically nothing. With the cycling, we want to refine our approach to the bike. I'm not suggesting one of these, you know, you know, well, you just want, you know, to do focused training, blah, 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 blah. Peter Coe, you know, famously said that everything should have a definable purpose. And if you can't explain why you're doing it, you shouldn't do it. And I think that we might just not always have the language or the ability to explain our purpose. And just because we don't have that doesn't mean that we have a basis for eliminating things that are important. What we want to do is we just want to make our cycling more effective. And if we're doing that, we're doing that. And feet per rep per mile, here I am, I'm trying to give us language, you know, to get Peter Co. to go shove it. Um, we want to prioritize rides that are hilly, okay? And then we can use flat rides if we really need to be resting, recovering, rejuvenating. And the volume of riding is, I think when you have a combination of running and riding, I think two to three hours a day is totally reasonable. And if you're working on a trainer and your running volume's gone up, then, you know, and you have long runs, then you don't need to do two to three hours a day on a trainer. And that's another benefit. And I also think psychologically, it can be nice, you know, to have an alternative form of aerobic training too. I think we have uh, sufficiently hilly rides um, in our training. If we're doing that, then that's going to naturally introduce the kind of uh, variance in power and effort, which is probably a part of the reason why people with high FRM trend towards higher VAM. You're doing harder work, and you're but you're able to adapt to it because you're not driving yourself to this point of failure, so you're doing lots of efforts very frequently. And I just don't think it's really necessary to prioritize big intervals on the bike. I mean, again, if you're only riding the bike and you know, you're training for very, you know, specific events with really long climbs, then okay, maybe there's a benefit to going out and doing that. But unless you have access to the topography that facilitates that, you know, don't try to force it, right? Because then you're just using up that psychological energy and you're going to run out of gas and you're not going to be able to keep up with your training. You know, you can incorporate periods of steady work into your rides. And again, this is based on feel. You know, my brother Camden, you know, he doesn't look, he has a power meter. He doesn't really like look at it when he's training. It's something to look at afterwards because it tells you about what you did and you can see if you're progressing. You know, I think pissing along on six to eight hour rides, you know, isn't helpful, you know, and I mean, it's fun to do once in a while, but don't feel like that has to be this staple of your training or else you won't get better. Do it because it's rewarding. And if it's a grind, it's just not that important. You know, you can spend four hours doing a long run and riding and you'll get more benefit than you will from just, you know, going along for your six to eight hour ride. And, you know, I think with the trainer work doing, we've talked about examples, but here's another example. If you do three sets of 20 by 30 seconds, 30 seconds or 30 seconds, 50 seconds, you know, that's good training. It's repeatable. And, you know, you could start out with that just at two millimoles or an approximate effort. And it doesn't matter. Do the watts that feel right to you. Okay. 
if the system or the model tells you you need to do more watts and you don't like the way it feels, well, then make it easier. And then work at that level. It'll get easier. And then you'll you know want to sort of progress from there. Let yourself progress that way. There's also an element of coaching here in developing the schedule beyond this point. Because it's difficult to meaningfully say what, what any one of us should do. And it's tempting, on the one hand, to map out an exemplar schedule. And I may do that at some point. Um, and we may have an episode where we talk about that. And we'll definitely have episodes in the future where we talk about examples of schedules or sort of like training patterns. And, you know, there's so much stuff to look at there. There's examples and then things we can kind of make up and things we can test out. Um, and it would be actually cool if we ever, you know, can get a group of, of listeners engaged with this and maybe we can kind of run some of our own impromptu experiments and kind of collect our own data and discuss that. But we'll see if we, we get to that uh, level of interest um, and engagement down the road. So if we write out an exemplar, though, that's just going to kind of box us in a little bit because we want to remember training is a cognitive skill and not having to think about what we're doing is not good. Uh, you won't be able to really progress without having the capacity to think because you're not going to be able to adapt and recognize what's going well or not going well. And our experience of the schedule um, could be influenced by factors like coaching and support. And this ties into feeling good, where just because things are going well or aren't going well doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with a particular quality of a schedule, but it has everything to do with how we're engaging with the schedule and maybe how other people are impacting or relating to us in terms of how we engage with the schedule. Because like we constantly need to be thinking about how are we processing and re-evaluating our training in such a way as to make sure that we're making progress. And I think the longer and longer a time frame on which you're training, you know, the less and less likely it is that a carefully designed schedule is ever going to be that effective of a tool to apply. And you know, we want to remember that a coach's job shouldn't be to take over the act of thinking. I think it's good for coaches to do thinking, but I always try to engage athletes in thinking about this stuff. Like, how can we have a conversation about this and a discussion and try to draw, you know, out the input of the athlete? You know, I think that it really needs to be a partnership between both parties. And I think in a lot of ways, coaching today is very much not what it should be. It's not what it ought to be because there's too much emphasis on, well, give me the plan. And if people want that, well, then that creates a market space for that and coaches can feed into that. And I think maybe, I don't know, do coaches think that if you give out too much information about how to train, you don't have a job? And I think that's absurd. That would be like saying, I'm going to run out of ideas for the podcast. That's just a lack of understanding of what the podcast is about. <laughs> By the same token, just like for the coach, it's a lack of understanding what training is. You know, people are constantly having to navigate that space and figure that stuff out. And, you know, we need feedback and we need guidance. And I know from conversations that some people are of the there's nothing new under the sun mentality and that there is nothing to talk about. And I definitely think that's a fixed mindset because you're not going to be able to adapt and make your approach effective or make it positive, fun, and rewarding if that's your point of view. Because then you're just saying it is this one thing, 
And then however you're experiencing it, that's just kind of too bad because that's what it has to be. And a coach can help with that. And they should be or else they're really not, I would argue, being a coach or at least not what I think a coach should be doing. And conversely, you know, if a coach is somebody who can't help with that, then I don't think that we really need coaches. We need to go find something else that can help with that. And for some athletes, you know, there's a complex relationship with training that, you know, they might not even be aware of or might not understand because we're not always encouraged to reflect or maybe we weren't engaged in reflecting on this stuff. And a good coach is going to need to work with them, the athletes, you know, or, you know, we have to find a coach who can work with us to help us sort of shuck off those dead leaves and and sort of bring out um, that personal growth. Some people will go from engagement to abandonment very quickly, and it seems like they can't even recognize that's happening. And that's where the coach can step in. The coach needs to be somebody who can redirect that. And that obviously relies a lot on what's the dynamic of that relationship? What's the dynamic of that partnership? And, you know, maybe the problem basically we're saying isn't going to be the training plan, but it could be, you know, like you, the athlete, have to be able to reach out when you need help. And you have to recognize, you know, when are you being lazy? When are you just struggling because your schedule isn't working for other reasons? And I think a good example of a coach to think about here is John Wooden, who was a basketball coach at uh, UCLA, and I think, you know, up until uh, retired in 1975, um, you know, and he's one of these people who just lived to be 100 years old. Um, and he has, a, he has a TED Talk if you want to check that out. But it's interesting to listen to that because you get the strong sense that for him as a coach, he was thinking about the person's well-being as a person. And I think sometimes he's sort of like, oh, well, great coaches do that. But that's sort of this like secondary thing. But I don't think it's that secondary because if we feel good and we're in a state of well-being, that's the state in which we're going to be successful and we're going to be wanting to self-actualize. And also a message for coaches, and I guess also the athletes, like sometimes the coach, you aren't always the problem. You can't be responsible or fix everything. Sometimes an athlete's beyond your ability to really influence in terms of addressing particular issues or problems. And maybe you can successfully redirect. And if you can't, then maybe sometimes, you know, we have to accept that there's limitations to what we can do. And as coaches, you know, if we're going to think about the person's well-being and think about what we're trying to facilitate from that end, then, you know, we also have to recognize it's not fair to ourselves um, to put more pressure on ourselves to perform, um, you know, interventions than is reasonably possible. Time and adaptation. Time is very important in all of this. Most people suck at marathon running. And I get to say this because I have, you know, sucked at marathons and I have not trained properly into any of the four marathons that I've done. Um, And the belief is commonly in that sporting space that you're just basically going to fail at 20 miles and sometimes you get lucky. And I fixed that this fall uh, by running five runs of about 30 to 32 miles over a three-month period. And that got me to the absolute low margin that I needed to be able to, you know, run all the way through um, at the 
Marine Corps Marathon uh, this fall. And, you know, the issue was never the distance. The issue was the distance at the speed. And typical marathon plans are like three, uh, you know, months to maybe four and a half months. I think six months, though, is the absolute minimum people need to see any kind of significant jump in fitness. And and like in my case, you know, I applied those runs over three months. And I, I didn't improve my fitness. I just sort of, you know, addressed this particular, you know, uh, leverage to my endurance. So in this concept, we're looking ideally at eight months. I think six months would be, you know, a minimum um, level and anything under that. I just think you're, I don't believe that you're asking yourself to do something that's realistic unless it's possible you've just sort of done a lot of the necessary training work without kind of maybe realizing it however if you don't apply that time frame and you get to may and you can execute the concept in the manner that we described at the beginning of this episode segment then i guess that that was the right amount of time for you and it would be an interesting exercise to look back and say well you know what happened in the time before you sort of like decided you were going to target this Uh, May training protocol that we've described here. Because, you know, overall, the adaptation that we want is transformation. And, you know, part of the issue is that we really don't know until the end of the time, if we've reached that point, and it becomes challenging to see if we're getting there. Because if we aren't making the right progress, how do we know that that's happening? And because if we don't know, how can we really correct that? So, This brings us to our last piece, um, which is how do we know if fitness is changing and how do we measure and verify progress? So I think that the thought experiment of devising um, methods for evaluation is pretty interesting and can be pretty significant. And one scale that we can look at this um, is to try to find a constant or controllable variable. So running the same courses and then looking for changes in time over the course, and then you could do that against a constant of perceived exertion and heart rate. Cycling, you could look for splits on hill segments, power, normalized power, and you could look at those against, say, heart rate. Um, Weights, it's just frankly the easiest to see because your weight is going up. Um, It's it's kind of straightforward, and I think that's part of the reason why weightlifting has you know, can get so popular at different times because, you know, it really engages people's desire to feel like they're progressing and getting better at something. And basically what you're looking to see is ease. Are you developing ease with the training that you're doing? And that's where having constants um, allows you to see that difference. Evaluating ease is more effective when you have self-directed zones because you feel less effort or greater velocity And in that state of controlled training efforts, you can tell that your mastery of what you're doing is greater. And contemporary training models, as we've said, can oftentimes displace or de-emphasize how we can feel and can, if that mode is not effective for you, just totally prevent you from recognizing what your body is actually feeling. So that's one space of that. Um, But that's a skill that it can take a while to develop. So there's other ways to sort of try to think about measuring and verifying progress. Uh, One of those is to look at blood lactate uh, in millimoles. If you have a lactate meter, um, and you can buy one if you don't um, online, uh, you could probably do a step test, frankly, uh, at the same time every week. 
Um, if you have a period in the week where you consistently feel a little bit more fresh, so you actually get a, a reading that's a little more representative of where you are, if you test it when you're fatigued, your results are just going to suck. And you can just stop at the two millimole level. You know, you can do your step test protocol. And, you know, if you know approximately where you are, you don't have to test all of the steps. You know, as you start to get closer to the heart rate that correlates with two millimoles, you know, you know, you'll need to test the two or three steps leading up to that. And then if you track that every week, you know, that would be an interesting way to do that. Um, with lactate, we also have examples of people going out in workouts and checking to see what their lactate is in workouts and just saying, well, we're going to control the intensity by measuring our, our uh, workout lactate. But you usually need somebody to help you with that. And that can start to be kind of inconvenient and a hassle. And I think, um, again, right, at what point are we sort of deferring how we feel to this external evaluation? Running races are also an interesting way to try to more tangibly measure progress. And I think they're especially indicative of, you know, if you're making progress or you're getting benefit from that FRM kind of thing. We've said earlier that running really correlates strongly to that. If you could run a sub 250 marathon through the process of doing all of this training, I'd say that would be an excellent indicator of being on track to win the national championship um, in the cycling road race. Uh, now, you could also run a 250 outside of this training paradigm, and I think that would be meaningless. I think most 250 marathoners are not going to go win the pro national race. But if you're doing this training and you're also getting to that fitness level, well, in that context, then that becomes a meaningful indicator. Uh, it's possible to invent a benchmark workout, um, but the issue is that most measures that you would try to drive through that space will have variability. And I find that people who are in a good process of training are usually able to tell if they're stronger just from other input, um, and that's a better indicator. Um, and so shifting to be more intuitive like that is probably a little bit more prudent than getting focused on a benchmark workout, because that can also be a real, you know, emotional chain jerk experience. The scale of improvement overall is not what you think, though. The benefit is aggregate. Okay, the benefit is aggregate. And as we work through what we're trying to get to, we need to remember that it's not always going to feel like we're making that progress, okay, in the sense that we're not always going to be able to tangibly verify that. And so what becomes necessary is we need to believe in the process. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know other people who would find these ideas or kinds of discussion interesting, pass it along. We'd love to have people share the episode to your Instagram story and follow us on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. We'll make a post after we put this episode up asking if people want one more Win Pro Nats episode. And in that episode, we will cover what needs to be done in the last month and how to actually win the race once you get to the starting line. And we might also talk a little bit more about what are some specific exemplar sessions that you could do throughout your buildup towards that concept in May. Thanks for listening to the Black Cats Run podcast, and we'll catch you next time.